Just go through the Bible and we uh, just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we can just study your Bible and uh, we can just see what you have for us. Lord, I pray that you'd help everybody to be attentive and help us to be able to leave here tonight knowing that you've met with us and maybe learned something from your word. We love you, Father. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Alright, well we're there in Genesis chapter number 28, and we're not going to focus on the first part of Genesis, but I do want to just bring your attention to a few things. If you look at verse number 7, the Bible says, And Jacob obeyed his father and his mother, and was gone to Paranaram, and Esau seeing that the daughters of Canaan, look what it says, Esau seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased... that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael, and took unto the wives which he had in Mahalath, the daughters of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajah, to be his wife. You know, uh, you can learn from that this, and we've talked about this before, but it's in the text, so we'll talk about it again. There is no business in a Christian marrying or dating an unsaved person. The Bible says that we are not to be unequally yoked together in the New Testament. And we ought not, and there we see another perfect example where Isaac tells his son Jacob, he said, I do not want you to take a daughter of the land of Canaan that represents the world, the unsaved people. He said, go back to our family and find a daughter there and marry that person. You see Esau there who had a bad attitude. He said, they don't like my, they don't like worldly girls. They don't like loose girls, they don't like bad girls, they don't like unsaved girls, that's why I'm going to marry. And he went and found Ishmael and his daughters and married them. But you know, uh, you say, why do you say that? Well, you know, I'll tell you the honest truth. One of the reasons I harp on that every chance I get is because of this. We've got some people who listen to my sermons on the internet. And some of them are these young guys who are, are single and dating. And they'll listen to me or they'll listen to uh, another pastor friend that I have. And it's funny because me and this other pastor friend have kind of similar testimonies when it comes to our wives. We both led our wives to the Lord. And there's this group of guys who have decided that they want to be just like Pastor Jimenez. Or they want to be just like Pastor Anderson, you know, because we led our wives to the Lord. And they're going around dating a bunch of unsaved girls. And then trying to get them saved. And, and, and I just would like to correct that every chance I get. Because what they don't understand is this. Pastor Jimenez did not date an unsaved girl, bring her to church, and get her saved. Pastor Jimenez got an unsaved girl saved, brought her to church. She grew in the Lord. She went soul winning. She grew in her standards and stuff. And then we got married. You see the difference there? I didn't get her saved because I wanted to marry her. I got her saved because I didn't want her to die and go to hell. She happened to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then I saw a potential mate. And so if these guys are listening on the internet, I want to make sure they understand where I stand on that. I do not approve of a Christian dating an unsaved girl or an unsaved uh, a saved girl dating an unsaved Christian. The Bible says that that's wrong. But anyway, we're not focusing on that tonight. I want you to look down at verse number uh, look at verse number 10 in Genesis 28. Look at verse number 10. The Bible says, And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for a pillow and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold the Lord stood above it and said I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac. The land wherein thou liest to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We see there God reiterating to Jacob the blessing that was given to him from Abraham to Isaac. Now we see that because of the birthright went to Jacob and not Esau. Even though he was a younger son. Now he's received the blessing of God as well. And in verse 15 he says, And behold I am with thee and will keep thee in all the places where thou goest. And will bring thee again into the land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I I have spoken to the of, and Jacob, look what it says, and Jacob awaked out of the sleep, and he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place. And notice what he says. This is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Now this is the first time in the Bible we find this phrase referring to the house of God. Now how did Jacob determine that this... Because if you notice there it said... um, uh, Look look at verse number 9 again. Or verse 10. And Jacob went from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place. 
Okay, this wasn't just any place, this was a specific place, a certain place, and Jacob determined that this certain place, this was the house of God. How did he determine that? Well, if you look at verse number uh, 13, he says he determined, behold, the Lord stood above it. And then later on he says, you know, the presence of the Lord is in this place. He determined that this, this certain area was the house of God, because this is where the presence of God was. You say, how does he know that the presence of God was there? Well, he knows the presence of God was there in verse uh, 13, because look what it says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham. So, God appears to Jacob in a dream, and He speaks. He uses words to speak to Jacob, and then Jacob identifies, God is in this place, this must be the house of God. He sets up a temple, he sets up a stone. Look at verse 21. So then, so that I came again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. Notice what he's saying. This is God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. You notice that he determines God's presence. He determines God's word. He determines God's house. And then this is what he does. He brings a tenth. He brings a tithe. This is the second time that tithing has been mentioned in the Bible. Uh, previous in Genesis, uh, Melchizedek, who's a Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, appeared to Abraham, and Abraham gave tithes of all that he had. But we see there he identifies this as God's house, and then he gives the tenth. Now let me just make this disclaimer. Pastor Jimenez very rarely preaches on the subject of tithing. And I'm not, it's not the sermon tonight, but it's in the text, so I will talk about it. There's nothing wrong with preaching on tithing, it's just not my thing. I don't really emphasize money. God doesn't emphasize money. Uh, in heaven, God paves the roads with gold. I don't really think he gives money that high of a priority. I probably preached one sermon, no, not probably, I know for a fact I preached one sermon on tithing uh, in the eight months that we've been starting this church. I don't mention it very much, and so I don't want you to leave here thinking that I'm one of these money-hungry pastors. I'm not. And uh, if you say that, you're lying. But it's in the text, so I want to deal with it. He gave a tenth. Now notice what he says in verse, uh, the last part of verse uh, 22. He says, of all that thou, notice the, ter- the words, Thou shalt give. Did he say, of all that thou hast given me, I will surely give? That's not what he said, right? He said, all that thou shalt give. So he's saying to God, everything you will give me in the future. So does it sound like he's going to be continue to do this throughout his entire life? He says, all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth. What is he saying? He's saying, God, everything you give me, I'm going to give back 10% of that to your house. How do we know it's God's house? Because His presence there. How do you identify His presence? Because His word was there. Because He heard God speak to Him. Say, what does this have to do with anything? Well, go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter number 6. You're there in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then you'll find um, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Go with me to Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter number 6. 2 Chronicles chapter number 6, look at verse number 48. 2 Chronicles chapter number 6, and look at verse number 48. Good night. 2 Chronicles 6.48, there's no 6.48. Hmm. Let's try 1 Chronicles 6.48. 1 Chronicles 6.48, let's see if this is a... Yeah, this is it. 1 Chronicles 6.48. I tried something new today, I hand wrote my notes. Big mistake. <laughs> Let's go to First Chronicles 6.48. Look at what it says. Throughout the Bible, the house of God changed. We saw here in Genesis 28, the first time the house of God mentioned, it's a rock. It's a stone. Not very flamboyant. But look at Genesis 6.48. I'm sorry, Second Chron- First Chronicles 6.48. Look at what it says. Their brethren also, the Levites, were appointed unto all manner of service. Look, notice what it says. Of the tabernacle of the house of God. So we find here that later on, the house of God changed. It, did, it wasn't always this stone in this certain place that Jacob built. Later in the, in the uh, history there of the Jews, they built what was called a tabernacle. You say, what's the tabernacle? Tabernacle was a, a, a place that God had designed. He gave the design to Moses. You can read all about it in Exodus. And it was a made of tents. It was designed to be able to be taken down and put back up. And, and they would 
would travel with this tabernacle. And this tabernacle, what I wanted you to see there, was the house of God. Their brethren also, the Levites, were appointed unto the manner of the service of the tabernacle of the house of God. So you see that this tabernacle is the house of God. You say, what was, uh, why was the tabernacle the house of God? Well, it was the house of God because the presence of God was there. You say, how was the presence of God there? Let me show you. Go with me to Exodus, chapter number 25. Remember I told you we are going to be looking at a lot of references, kind of a Bible study. Just stay with me. Um, we'll make applications here in a little bit, but I want you to see this. Exodus, chapter number 25. Look at verse number 10. Hopefully it's there. Exodus, chapter number 25. Look at verse number 10. Exodus 25, 10. You say, what is the... Ark of the Covenant. Look at Exodus 25.10. God is telling them about it. He says, And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without, and thou shalt overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about it. Round about and thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, and the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony, make note of that, thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee, and thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat, shall ye make the cherubim on the two ends thereof, and the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on the high covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony, notice that it said, the testimony that I shall give thee, and there I will meet, look at verse 22, and there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, and between the cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandments unto the children of Israel. So you see there God has given him instructions as to the ark. I know we read a lot, you probably missed a lot of it, but he said, I want you to build an ark, pretty much a box. He said, I want you to make it out of shittim wood, overlay it with gold. He said, I want you to put rings on the bottom of it. You're going to have these staves, and you're going to put the, the, you know, very much those sticks on those rings, and, you're, and, and four Levites are going to carry that ark when it needs to be moved. Only the Levites were allowed to carry the ark. He said, I want you to put a, uh, a seat on the top of it. And then he said, I want you to design it with these cherubims. And I don't have time to get into it, types of angels or whatever. And you're going to put these angels there. And he said, I want you to put the testimony in the Ark of the Covenant. That word testimony is referring to the Word of God. And he said, I'm going to meet and I'm going to commute with you there in the Ark of the Covenant. Look at Deuteronomy chapter number 31. You're there in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter number 31. Deuteronomy 31, and look at verse number 24. Deuteronomy 31, and look at verse number 24. Deuteronomy 31, 24 says, And it came to pass, when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book. So you're seeing there, Moses is writing all the words that God gave him. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Until they were finished, look at verse 25, that Moses commanded the Levites which bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against it. So you see there that they, they God said, put the testimony in the Ark. When Moses got done writing the book of the law, he said, put it uh, in the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant represents God's presence represents God's glory. How does it, why does it represent that? Because God's word was in it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning, we preached a sermon about uh, the, the King James Bible, and I don't want to go through it again, but if you go with me to John chapter number 1, if you look at verse number 1, we'll look at these verses quickly, John 1.1, 1, 1. if you don't understand that subject, uh, grab the CD or listen to it online, uh, the title of the sermon is the KJV, God's Incorruptible Word, but if you look at John chapter number 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, why does the Word of God represent God? Because the Word of God was God. So when they put the law of the Word of God in the ark, God said, that, that's where I'm going to commune with you. That's where I'm going to meet with you. That's where I'm going to abide. Why? Because the words of God are God. You see that? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Look at verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see that the Word became flesh, that's Jesus Christ. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. So the Word of God is God. And when the Word was placed in the Ark of the Covenant and then placed in the tabernacle of God, do you see how we have the same identifying principles that Jacob had? You had God's Word. That's where he heard Him speak. You had the presence of God, therefore the tabernacle became the house of God. Are you following what I'm saying? Look at Numbers 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. (laughs) Numbers, chapter number 18. Numbers 18. I was in the New Testament this morning, so I got stuck with that. Numbers 18, and look at verse number 21. Numbers 18, 21. The Bible says, And behold, I have given the children of Levi, look what it says, all the tenth in Israel. That's the tithe. That's what the word tithe means. It means the tenth. All the tenth in Israel, for an inheritance, for their service, which they serve, even the service of the, notice what it says, tabernacle of the congregation. You see the same identifying principles. We've got God's word. We've got God's presence. This makes, us, this makes the tabernacle the house of God. And then we've got the tithe going to the house of God. Jacob heard God's word. He identified his presence. He said, this certain place is the house of God. And then he gave a tent. But then the house of God changed again. He said, it started there with Jacob. It changed to the tabernacle. But then it changed one more time to the temple. Go with me to 2 Samuel, chapter number 7. 2 Samuel, chapter number 7. There in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges... Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, chapter number 7. 2 Samuel, chapter number 7. Look at verse number 13. 2 Samuel 7, 13. And let's see. 2 Samuel 7, 13. Actually, look at verse number 1. And it came to pass, when the king sat in the house... This is King David. And the Lord had given him rest about from all his enemies. That the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God, that's the ark of the covenant, dwelleth within curtains. That's the, the tabernacle, the tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. You remember David had a desire. He said, I don't want God's house to be a tent. He built himself a palace and he said, why do I live in a house of cedar? And God's ark dwells in curtains. So it was put in his heart to build a temple. Now God did not allow David to build a temple. He allowed his son Solomon to build a temple. But David prepared a lot that was going to be built for the temple. But go with me to 2 Chronicles. You're there in 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter number 5. 2 Chronicles chapter number 5. Look at verse number 1. 2 Chronicles chapter number 5 and look at verse 1. 2 Chronicles 5.1. We see that Solomon builds the temple. And it says in 2 Chronicles 5.1. Thus, all the work that Solomon made, notice what it says, for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated, and the silver and the gold and all the instruments put he among the treasures of the house of God. So we see here, a transfer is made. The tabernacle used to be the house of God. Now he built this temple, which is now the house of God. But but when did God abide in that house? When did God decide to dwell in that house? Look at verse number 2. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel. And all the heads of the tribe of the chiefs of the fathers of the children of Israel unto Jerusalem to bring up the ark. Do you see that? Of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. 
Wherefore all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast which was in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark and the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, these did the priests and the Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him before the ark sacrificed sheep and oxen, which could not be told nor numbered for multitudes. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, to the oracles of the house, of the house into the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. For the cherubims spread forth their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves of the ark, that the ends of the staves were seen from the ark before the oracle, and they were not seen without, and there it is unto this day. There was nothing in the ark, save, notice what's in the ark, the two tables which Moses put therein at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So what's in the ark? God's Word. God wrote His Word on two tables to, you know, the Ten Commandments, and Moses put those in the table. And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified, and did not then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph and Heman and Jethuthun, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east of the altar, and with them an hundred and twenty priests surrounding the trumpets. You see what's going on, okay? I want you to understand. They're moving things from the tabernacle to the temple. And now they brought the ark from the tabernacle to the temple. And all these priests who are the singers, they're getting ready to sing and to play their instruments and to give glory to God. And in verse 13 it says, It came even to pass as the trumpets and the singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. So they're getting ready to start singing. And when they lifted up their voices with trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever, that then, notice what it says, the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled, uh, had, had filled the house of God. He said, When did the temple become God's house? When did God enter in and entwell that temple? And his glory shone in. And his glory was so powerful that the priests, they couldn't even stand there. They had to leave because they couldn't even sing the songs they had planned. Because God showed up. When did that happen? When the Ark of the Covenant moved in. When God's Word moved in. God's Word moved in, became His house. And guess what happened? I'll give you one guess. They began to tithe there. Go to, go to uh, 2 Chronicles chapter number 31. 2 Chronicles chapter number 31. Do you see how the Bible is very consistent? 2 Chronicles chapter number 31, look at verse number 2. 2 Chronicles 31, 2. And Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 32, 2, yeah. And Hezekiah appointed the course of the priest and the Levites after their courses, every man according to his service, the priest and the Levites for burnt offerings and for peace offerings to minister and to give thanks and to praise in the gates of the tents of the Lord. He appointed also the king's portion of his substance for the burnt offerings to wit for the morning and evening burnt offerings and the burnt offerings for the Sabbath and for the new moons and for the... Uh, feast as it is written in the law of the Lord. Moreover, he commanded the people that dwell in Jerusalem to give the portion of the priests and the Levites that they might be encouraged in the law of the Lord. And as soon as the commandment came abroad, the children of Israel brought in abundance. Notice what it says. The first fruits, that's another word for the tithe. It was the first 10% of corn. Wine and oil, I can prove that to you later if you don't agree. And honey, and all the increase, make note of that word, they were to tithe off their increase. Alright, remember that, we'll be talking about that later. Of the field, and the tithe of all things brought they in abundance. So God has given us three different terms, it's all the same thing. They brought the first fruit, they brought the increase, they brought the tithe. And concerning the children of Israel and Judah that dwelt in the cities of Judah, they also brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep and the tithe of holy things which were consecrated unto the Lord their God and laid them by heaps. In the third month they began to lay the foundation of the heaps and finished them in the seventh month. You see, they're bringing the tithe. 
Then when Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and His people Israel. And Hezekiah questioned with the priests of the Levites concerning the heaps. So they're bringing in so much tithe that they've got, they don't even know what to do with it. They're just putting it in heaps. Because they're not bringing money. You know, today we deal with money. So we tithe in checks or whatever. They're actually bringing the first 10% of their sheep. The first 10% of their ox. The first 10% of the wheat. They're bringing all these things. And they, they've just got heaps of it. They don't even know what to do with it. Look at verse 10. And Azariah the chief priest of the house of Sadak answered him and said, Since the people began to bring offerings into the house of the Lord. So notice, they're bringing the offerings to the house of the Lord. That's the temple at this point. We have had enough to eat and have left plenty for the Lord hath blessed His house and that which is left is this great, make note of this word, store. They said, this is what we've got, this store. Look at verse 11. Then Hezekiah commanded to prepare chambers in the house of the Lord and they prepared them. So they started bringing in these tithes and they had so much, they, they had to store it. They had a store. So Hezekiah said, okay, I want you to make chambers. I want you to make rooms in the house of God, in the temple, so we could store this tithe. So I want you to see, they built the temple, they bring in God's word, God, you know, because His word is there, He indwells that place, it becomes the house of God, and then they bring in to tithe there. Go to Malachi chapter number 3. Last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter number 3. I want you to see the consistency. Jacob heard God's word, determined his presence was there, determined it was the house of God, and he tithed it. In the tabernacle, they brought in God's word. God indwelled the tabernacle. They determined it was the house of God, and then they tithed there. And then on the temple, they brought in the ark, they brought in God's word, God's presence came in, and then they tied there. Look at Malachi chapter number 3. Malachi chapter number 3, look at verse number 8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? Notice what he answers. In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Notice what he says. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. Do you remember I told you to keep in mind that word store? This is the temple. Because they built storage places. They built chambers to store the tithe. To bring the tithe to the storehouse, to the temple. That there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, and he shall not destroy the fruit of your grounds, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. You know, when Christians, and this isn't always the, always the case, but I will tell you this, most of the time when Christians tell me, I, I've got financial problems, I need to borrow money, or I, need, I need to go get a payday loan, I need to get a loan. It seems like I just got all this money, I can't say. Usually the problem is this, they're not tight. And I, you say, oh, that sounds like a prosperity preaching. Well, this is the truth. Not all the time. Obviously, there are those, there are those Job's who have financial issues because of no sin of theirs, of their own, but, you know, I found usually Job's are very few and far between. Usually, you know, God, why would God respect you with, his, with money if you don't respect Him with money? You know, and there He gives a blessing. He says, look, I will rebuke the devourer. And I'm here to attest to this. You know, I'm not a rich man by any stretch of the imagination. Um, my wife and I, you know, we've got food. We've never gone without food. We've never gone without meals. We've never gone, you know, literally, I mean, the, the most we've ever struggled is we can't go out to eat. We've always had food. God has always allowed us to make our payments. We've got cars that are paid off. We've got no debt but this house. You know, God is... And you say, why Why has God blessed you like this? I mean, look, I'm not very smart. <laughs> you know? I don't know. I, I'm not very smart to make a lot of money. You say, what? How, how, how is it that God... I, I believe this is why God has blessed me this way. Because from a very small child, my mom and dad taught me to tithe. I remember my dad would make me work 40 hours and he paid me a $20 bill. No, I'm just kidding. You know, but I remember we'd go to work with my dad and he'd pay us $20 and he'd make us take two of those dollars and put in the offering plate. And he taught us to tithe. And I believe God's what? Have I become rich because of it? No. But I've never got a payday loan. <laughs> I've never gone without food. You know, God's always blessed us. God's always taken care of us. But I want you to see, God's word equals the presence of God, equals the house of God, and then they tithe there. You say, what's the house of God in the New Testament? Go with me to 1 Timothy, chapter number 3. 1 Timothy, chapter number 3. I've only been preaching for half an hour. So just stick with me. I'll start yelling here in a little bit and wake you up. But just, you got to see this. 1 Timothy chapter number 3. Towards the end of your New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter number 3. Look at verse number 
15. And by the way, that goes with our Father's Day sermon this morning. I, I don't have an, You know why I don't have an issue with tithing? Because I was taught it by my father and my mother at a very young age. That's the landmark. You've got to set those landmarks. You've got to teach those kids young to love God and love God. Do you think I want to tithe my $2? Man, with $2, I got about two ice creams. But I was taught to tithe, and now today, I tithe literally thousands of dollars a year, and I have no issue with it, no problem. I don't even give it a second thought. Why? Because it was instilled from a young child. And you've got to learn that. Go to First Timothy chapter number 3, look at verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter number 3, look at verse 15. And by the way, just, just because I'm the pastor, I still tithe. And I don't take a check from the church either. At least I never have. Not yet. Maybe I will one of these days. Look at 1 Timothy chapter number 3 and look at verse 15. Look at what God says. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. So we're going to see what's the house of God in the New Testament. Look what it says. Which is the church of the living God the pillar and ground of the truth. So we see a third change. It went from a rock <laughs> to the tabernacle, to the temple. And now the house of God in the New Testament is the church of the living God. You say, what's the church? Is the church a building? No, it's not. You say, that, that's why I have no problems with having church in a house because church is not a building. And by, and by the way, there's five different references in the Bible to churches meeting in a house. So it's a very biblical thing. But you say, what is the church? Well, let me show you. Look at Hebrews chapter number 2. You're there in the New Testament. Go to Hebrews. You're there in First Timothy. Just go to Second Timothy. And then uh, Titus, Philemon. And then you'll be in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 2. And look at verse number 12. Hebrews chapter number 2. Look at verse number 12. I'm going to show you how to study the Bible right now. Say, Pastor Jimenez, do you study the Bible with a commentary? No. Let me show you how I study the Bible. Hebrews chapter number 2 and verse 12. Says, For if the word spoken by angels... That's not it. Good night. Hebrews 2.12. I'm reading 2.2. 2, 2. Hebrews 2.12. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. Look what it says. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Now we want to find out what the word church means, right? Do we run to a dictionary? No. Let the Bible be its own dictionary. Keep your finger there in Hebrews chapter number 2 and verse 12. And go with me to Psalm 22 and verse 22. If you open your, your Bible, just smack down in the middle. You're more than likely following the book of Psalms. Go to Psalms 22 verse 22. This is how you study the Bible. Don't run to a dictionary all the time. Don't run to a commentary all the time. Look at Psalms 22, 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren... In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Does that sound familiar? In, the, in Psalm 22, 22, he says, In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. In Hebrews 2, 12, he says, In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. He's, he used these words interchangeably. Congregation and church. You say, is that a mistake in your King James Bible? No, that's God explaining to us what the word church means. It's congregation. Now here's what the average Baptist preacher would do. They'd go find some sort of a Hebrew lexicon. And they'd go in their Hebrew lexicon and they'd say, Oh, church means ecclesia, which means a called out assembly. Which means, you know, the assembly of believers. And it's like, okay, that's the right answer. But you could have found that in the Bible. You didn't have to go to the Greek. Say, well, why not go to the Greek? Well, here's the problem with the Greek. You don't speak Greek. <laughs> you don't speak Greek. You speak English. So use your King James Bible and study it in English and God is going to teach you what it says. So the word congregation means church. Congregation means a assembly. To congregate. It's like Congress in D.C. All these representatives from all different states. They congregate together in Congress. Okay, that's what the word means. It means to assemble. You say, what is the church? Is the church this house? Is the church a nice building with a steeple with stained glass one? No. A church is a congregation of believers. When believers come together and they unite and they come together, that is what the church is. Go to Acts chapter number 7. Look at verse number 38. Acts chapter number 7. Look at verse number 38. Acts 7.38. I'm very aware that I've been doing this for about 30 minutes. Just stick with me. I'm going to make an application here in a second. But look at Acts chapter number 7. Look at verse number 38. Acts 7.38. You say, is this concept of the church being the congregation new to the Bible? Well, look at Acts 7.38. This is he that was in the church. Look what it says. In the wilderness with the angel who spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles that's the word of God 
When you see oracles, that's God's word. That's a different word, term for the word of God. To give unto us. Alright? So we see there, the church in the wilderness. What was the church in the wilderness? The children of Israel. They were a congregation of believers. And God says they were a church. And notice what they had with them. Lively oracles. They had the word of God. Go with me. Keep your finger there. In Acts 7.38, go to Exodus chapter number 16. You know I like to prove everything from the Bible, so just look at it. Exodus chapter number 16, and look at verse number 2. Exodus chapter number 16, and look at verse number 2. Exodus 16, 2, just to make a point, the Bible says, look what it says. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So the Bible all over in the, in the Old Testament calls them a congregation in the wilderness. In the New Testament, it calls them a church in the wilderness. Why? Because the word church and the word congregation mean the same thing. What's the house of God in the New Testament? The church. What's the church? The congregation. That's what it is. There is a connection with the church and the Word of God. Go with me to Acts chapter number 6. Look at verse number 7. Acts 6, 7. We saw there in Acts uh, 7, 38 that there was a church in the wilderness they had the oracles of God. Look at Acts chapter number 6 and verse 7. Look what it says. And the Word of God increased. The Word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied. That's talking about the church in Jerusalem greatly. So you see the correlation between the Word of God and the church of God? And guess what? The church of God in the New Testament is a congregation. They have the words of God. It's the house of God. And guess what they do in the New Testament? They tithe. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1, the Bible says this. Now concerning the collection of the saints. The collection is like when we pass the offering plate. We're collecting the offering. Now concerning the collection of the saints. Notice it's the saints. Those are Christians. As I have given, it's not, you know, saint so-and-so you pray for. That's idolatry. That's Catholicism. That's idolatry. You study the word saint in the Bible. That's a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a saint. You're a saint if you're saved. It's not, it's not a picture on a candle that we put a light to. That's Roman uh, mysticism. That's what Catholicism is. But look, it says, Now concerning the collection of saints, As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Look what it says. Upon the first day of the week. What does that sound like? Church. Sunday is the first day of the week. That's when church meets. That's when we congregate. Let every one of you lay by him in store. Does that word sound familiar? From the Old Testament? You bring your tithe to the storehouse, right? They, you bring it in store. As God has prospered him, that's the same word as increase. Remember, you tithe off your increase. You tithe off of what God prospered you. If I had, you know, if I start the year off with ten, with, let's say I start the year off with a hundred sheep in the Old Testament. And at the end of the year I have two hundred sheep. How much did I increase? A hundred sheep. So how much do I tithe? Ten sheep. The first fruits. The first ten sheep. Let's say I start the year off with a hundred sheep. And something happens and 20 of them die. I end the year with 80 sheep. Did I prosper anything? No. Did I increase anything? No. Do I tithe? No. Okay? That's what it means. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him. That's the increase. That there be no gathering when I come. Now go with me to Matthew chapter number 23. Look at verse number 23. Matthew 23. First book in the New Testament. Matthew 23. And look at verse number 23. Because there's a controversy with this in the New Testament. Some like to believe... Now, tithing is not mentioned in the New Testament. So let me show you that it is. Matthew 23, 23. Jesus Christ is speaking here. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, he's talking to those scribes and Pharisees, and he's calling them hypocrites. He's preaching at them. He says, For ye pay tithe, notice what did they pay tithe? Of mint and anise and cumin. Now, who knows what mint, anise, and cumin are? Spices. He's saying, he's saying, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He said, you tithe off of the smallest spice. Mint, anise, and cumin. And notice what he says. And have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Do you see that Jesus Christ? Does it seem like Jesus thinks that tithing is the most important part of the law? No. He says, you've omitted the weightier part of the law. You've omitted the most important part of the law while you're tithing off mint, cumin, whatever. He says, and omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done. But notice what Jesus Christ says. 
He says, you should have had mercy. You should have had judgment. You should have done, had faith. He said, these should you have done. And not to leave the other undone. Did Jesus, does it sound like Jesus Christ is saying that we're supposed to stop tithing? People say in the New Testament, Jesus Christ got rid of the law. We're not supposed to tithe. Is that what he said? He said, look, I'm glad you tithe. Why, why did they tithe off the main Cuban? Because you're supposed to tithe off your increase. You know, get this idea away. You don't tithe off your income. You tithe off your increase. I t- when I get paid, I tithe to God. But when someone gives me a gift, I tithe to God. When my wife gives me a gift, I don't tithe to God, because guess who paid for that? I did. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But you know, if somebody gives you a gift, Father's Day, someone gave you a gift, you ought to look at those gifts and say, I think this was worth about $20. I just increased $20. So put $2 in the apple. The, the husband took us out to Chipotle a couple weeks ago. I think the, the meal came out to $32. I, you better believe I put $4 in the offering plate. I tithe off the increase. Because I'm telling God, hey God, I understand that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from the Father of lights. I'm saying to God, I understand every time someone does something nice for me, it actually came from you. So I'm going to identify that by tithing off the increase. And Jesus is not telling the Pharisees that they were doing wrong. He says, you do tithe off the mint. You do tithe off the anise. You do tithe off the cumin. And have omitted the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. This is also found in Luke chapter number 11. Now, I will never understand how Jesus Christ, with His own mouth, is saying, you should tithe off the mint. You should tithe off the anise. You should tithe. He's not saying don't tithe. He says, just don't tithe, and then not do these other things. And then today people say, we're not supposed to tithe in the New Testament. I mean, can you get more New Testament than Matthew? Can you get more New Testament than Jesus Christ? He said, yes, tithe. He said, yes, give it. Just don't omit the weightier parts of the law. He says, if you omit the weightier parts, law, judgment, faith, you're a hypocrite. But that's what he said. And we saw there in 1 Corinthians, they gave up their store, they gave up their prosper, they took a collection. So I'm trying to show you this. In the New Testament, we've got a congregation. That is the church. They have the Word of God, the oracles of God. God says this is the house of God, and then we tithe. Just like Jacob did back in Genesis 28. Just like in the tabernacle during the days of Moses. Just like in the temple during the days of Solomon. And just like in the New Testament in the names of Jesus Christ. In the days, you know, after Jesus Christ. We have the house of God. We've got the word of God. We've got the congregation of God. And then we tithe to God. You say, what? What does that, all of that have to do with, it, with anything? Well, here's what it has to do with. Here's the point. I said all that to say this. The church must meet certain qualifications. I preached a sermon on the King James Bible on Sunday. And I proved without a shadow of doubt that the King James Bible is God's word without error. Perfect. You don't, you don't believe me? Grab the CD. Try to prove me wrong. It's, it's there. Well, what makes a place the house of God? What made the certain place for Jacob the house of God? God spoke his word there. What made the tabernacle the house of God? They brought in the ark with God's word. What made the temple the house of God? They brought in the ark with God's word. What makes Verity Baptist Church the house of God? This King James Bible. You know what that disqualifies? You know, there, there's buildings all across America. They call themselves churches. But they're preaching out of the New International Version. They're preaching out of the New King James Version. They're preaching out of the American Standard Version. Are they a church? Are they the house of God? No, they're not. Because how do you identify the house of God? By His word. By His presence. Number two... The house of God is the congregation of believers. We prove that without a shadow of doubt. So that's just the New Testament. No, in the Old Testament too, they were the church in the wilderness. They were, it's a church, it's a congregation of believers. You must be a believer to be a church. You know what that, well right there, we just disqualified any group of people that are just congregating together, but they're not believers. Are they a church? No, they're not. Is the Muslim a church? No, it is not. Is the fraternity a church? No. Well, there's people congregating, they're not a church. Because they're not believers, they're not saved. You know what that you know what that proves to me? The Catholic Church is not a church. You say, why is it not a church? Because it's a congregation of unbelievers. Say, so why are they unbelievers? They believe that you gotta get baptized to get saved. They believe you gotta get catechized to be saved. They believe you gotta confess to a man and not Jesus Christ. They believe that you could lose your salvation. They believe that if you weren't baptized, you're not, you know. They believe in work salvation. They don't believe that salvation comes in and through believing in Jesus Christ. So therefore, they're not believers. So therefore, they're not a church. We just disqualified the Catholics. 
We just disqualified the Southern Baptists who believe in Lordship salvation. That you must make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. And if He's not the Lord of your life, then you're not, then you haven't made, look, you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life. If you had made Jesus the Lord of your life, you know, the Lord means master. Lord means He's the boss. If Jesus was the boss of my life in every area of my life, you know that I'd never sin. I mean, I try to follow Jesus in every way I can, but I'm still a sinner and so are you. And to make Jesus the Lord of your life is works salvation. You say, you don't believe in the Southern Baptist? I thought you were a Baptist. Look, let me explain something to you. Not all Baptists are equal. <laughs> Not all Baptists are good. Not all Baptists are the same. We just disqualified the Pentecostals. They believe that you've got to get baptized to be saved. Works salvation. They're not saved. They believe if you don't speak in tongues, you didn't get filled with the Holy Spirit. Work salvation. They're not believers. They're not a church. They, pre- they don't preach out of King James Bible. They're not a church. I, I was just talking about, with Brother Darrell about this a, a few weeks ago. Here's, here's the best exam- example I, can, I, I heard somebody say. You know, if I go in and I open a KFC, and I say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting a KFC. I'm going to serve chicken. I'm going to serve this. And then I come along and I decide, all right, I've got this KFC, and we're going to serve Big Macs. You think I'm going to fly with KFC? What are they going to do? They're going to take the franchise away. Go with me to Revelation chapter number 3. Revelation chapter number 2. This is even in my notes. Revelation chapter number 2. Look at verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden castles. You say, what are the seven stars? Look at verse number 20 in Revelation chapter number 1. Revelation 1.20 The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. Look what it says. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So the candlesticks are represented by the seven churches. Do you see that? Look at chapter 2. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that is hold, uh, the, hold the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's the churches. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. How thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, for my namesake has labored and not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove, look what it says, thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now what's the candlestick? The church. And Jesus Christ said, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, I'm going to remove my candlestick. What is he saying? I'm going to remove my franchise. Are there places in Sacramento that have a building with a steeple with stained glass windows and says so-and-so whatever church and they're not the church. A church. Yes, there are. Because just like KFC is going to come along and say, you know what, we're, we're taking the kernel. Because you're serving Big Macs and that's not what we're serving here. And they're taking the In the same way, God will come to a place and say, you used to have the Word of God. You used to have a congregation of believers. But then you started preaching repent of your sin. Then you started preaching Lordship salvation. Then you started preaching get baptized. And now you've got a whole group of people, but none of them are saved. You don't even have the Word of God. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to remove my candlestick. You better believe God takes his franchise. Go, go back to Genesis 28, where we started. Not all churches are churches. Not all Baptists are Baptists. Just because they say they believe in Jesus Christ doesn't mean they're saved. If you're adding works to that, you're not saved. You're going to die and go to hell. Say, why would I die and go to hell? Look, this is a, here's the funny thing about it. I, I, here's the funny thing about people. They, they come to, you know, people come to me and say, you don't believe that you got to live right to go to... You know, I believe... Here's, here's the funny thing. The, the Catholics believe that they gotta, they, they, they got to live a right life. I mean, they got to confess their sins. they got to get baptized. they got to keep catechism. they got to do this. they got to do that. But then, they're the ones, you know... Compare... You know, and, and I apologize for something. Compare my life and my wife's life and our holiness to any Catholic in the city. And tell me who lives more righteously. I mean, Catholics are getting drunk. Catholics are just fornicating. Catholics, they do whatever they want. They go into the confessional booth. Oh, forgive me, Father. Uh, rub these beads. You know, uh, drink water upside down. Do a few jumping jacks and you'll be good. And good night. You know, and, and, then, and then here comes the Baptist preacher who says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just get saved. Just believe on Jesus. You can live however you want. And it's eternal security. And that's the guy who doesn't have a television. You know, doesn't drink. Doesn't do anything. You know you see what I'm saying? It doesn't even make sense. Not all churches are equal. All men are created equal. All churches are not. But look at Genesis chapter number 28. Look at verse number 16. Genesis 28, 16. Genesis 28, 16. 
And Jacob awaked out of his sleep. And he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And look what he says. And I knew it not. I, I get emails all the time. I got an email sitting in my inbox right now. Looked at, saw it this morning. Young man saying, I listen to your sermons on the internet. Don't have a church, good church near me. I, I, I've been listening to your sermons on the internet. I've been growing so much. I wish I had a church like you. He asked me a question about salvation, some spiritual things. I get emails all the time, people saying, I wish I had a church like Verity. I, 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 a guy donated $5,000 to our church. He said, he said I, I listened to your sermon on repentance. He said, I'm so sick and tired of all the Baptist churches in my area pushing repentance down our throat. I wish I had a church like yours. He sent an offering to us. I mean, all, all, every week. And you know what the sad thing is? We go out and get 70 people saved this year. They come and visit. And then they leave. And say, eh, your church is nice, but this church, this church has more activities. This church has more things for the kids. And, and here's what the sad part of the average question is. Surely the Lord is in this place. I believe the Lord is in this place. But here's the sad thing of the average question. They don't even know. Like Jacob said, and I knew it not. I mean, God meets with us every week. We open God's Word and God meets with us. We preach God's Word and we learn God's Word and people grow and people get saved and, and, and people all across this country wish that they had a Baptist church like this one but yet, you know, like the Bible says, a prophet had no honor in his own country and the sad thing is that all these people all over the country say, oh, I wish I had a church to preach the Bible. I wish I had a church, I wish I had a, a pastor who would preach God's Word unadulterated and he wouldn't care if, if, if it's not politically correct. He wouldn't care if it goes against the ground. He wouldn't care if it offends. I wish I had a church that just used the King James I wish I had a church that went so many, got people saved, and, and was knocking on every door in Sacramento. I wish I had a church, you know, all over the country, but people here say, eh. Yeah, surely the Lord is in this place, but they don't even realize. And I just want to ask you this. Do you know what you have? Are you thankful for what you have? Because one day, Verity Baptist Church might not exist. One day, we might lose a franchise. One day, we, the candlestick might. Now, it, might, it won't happen while I'm alive, I'll tell you that right now. But one day you may move somewhere where there is no church. One day you may move somewhere and, and be searching for you. You can't find a, a fundamental church anywhere. All a bunch of liberals. And you're going to say, man, I, 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 wish, I, I wish I would have gone more to that church back in Sacramento. Be thankful for what you got. The house of God where God meets with us. The church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for our church.